There is an opportunity for healing in each day. Sometimes tucked away within the crevices and sometimes lying clear as day in front of you. Your healing moments will not always be obvious, so this is why it's important to work on oneself. Because when we're stuck in the muck and mire of our pain, we often miss the healing reaching to pull us out. Take this time now for silence and focus. Where are you in your work? Have you even begun? Remember, there is no rush. It's the beauty of awareness that matters most. Once your eyes are open, it's harder to close than to simply be able to look out and see what was and what is. Take your time and connect to you. And now, misfits, let's get healed. Welcome to the Healing Space, a black and queer mental health podcast geared toward proving there's more than one way to heal. I am your host, Sensei Raven Ekundayo. Here we are, Misfit Universe. It is officially Mental Health Awareness Month. So of course you know here at the Healing Space that is very special to us. So uh, a few things. Of course, we're going to make sure that a lot of the conversations that take place this month, as with pretty much every episode of The Healing Space, we're going to be focused on mental health. So it's one of the things that comes up during my conversation with uh, this week's guest, Hari Ziad. They are a dear friend of mine, and I look forward to you all being able to hear our conversation. They are the author of the new book, Black Boy Out of Time. Uh, we touch on mental health. We touch on a lot of the different topics that they discuss in their book, their memoir, and I think you misfits are going to enjoy it. So when it comes to the check-in, I don't really know if there's a lot to check in with. <laughs> uh, there's a lot that's going on, but it's nothing that I really feel like is worth talking about. I mean, I'm still in a happy space, you know, uh, still very happy with my partner, uh, not as stressed or depressed as I have been in the past, in a pretty good space, in a pretty good space. Uh, I would say maybe a month or so ago, I was contemplating a lot of change, a lot of change. Uh, but where I am now, I'm pretty cool, you know? Uh, I don't like being comfortable. That's just me personally. I'm not saying that to any of you. Just not a big proponent of being comfortable. I enjoy change. 
Uh, I like it quite a bit in most aspects of life. <laughs> Being the Scorpio that I am, I more often than not like to control the change that takes place. Uh, so, of course, it looks different if I'm not the person in control. But, yeah, I welcome control. I mean, I welcome control. Ha! That's hilarious. I welcome change. <laughs> I welcome change uh, greatly. So, yeah, that's, that's most of the check-in. Uh, I went back home. I went back home to the DMV, had an opportunity to visit my family. And did I talk about that on the last episode? I don't know. I feel like I recorded that before I flew out, uh, but that may not be true. After you start recording enough episodes, you have to go back and kind of remind yourself of what you've talked about or you'll be completely lost. Uh, but yeah, so it was good being back home and seeing my family and friends. However, I think the reason why I'm not focused too much on the check-in is because I want to get into the culture of pop. Now, when talking about the culture of pop, I'm going to simply talk about Pose and everything that's surrounding Pose. That's it. Culture of Pop won't be too long, uh, as long as I don't decide to go on a huge rant. So, <laughs> I'll first start by talking about the premiere last night. I'm recording this on Monday, May 3rd. And uh, we had two back-to-back -back episodes on May 2nd, Sunday night. So, let me first say this. They only have seven episodes this season. For those of you misfits who are listening who don't know, this is the final season of Pose. So it caught a lot of us off guard that it was only going to be seven episodes. Now, for those of us who have been paying attention to Pose and Ryan Murphy, we know that he stated that it was more than likely going to end this season, even though I felt like I remember him saying it was going to be two seasons from now, but we did know it was going to end in the mid-90s. So when we found out that there were only seven episodes, it's like, what? Especially because last night they aired two episodes. So that leaves us with only five. So that's my first issue. My second issue, well, let me put out something really positive. I personally believe that the acting has gotten a lot better on the show. There are quite a few people on the cast that I was not a fan of their acting in the first season. I'm aware that, you know, a good number of them, this was their first acting role. I get that. I absolutely do. Uh, but once again, you know, as someone who went to school for acting, it is difficult for me to always pull myself out of that space. You know, as I always say, I, I liken it to a lot of my friends who are singers. They are fully aware that this person who's getting up at karaoke is not a singer, you know. However, they can't help but to have slight judges of pitch and all those kind of things. I'm the same way when it comes to acting. I'm, I'm very aware. Excuse me, I have a piece of hair on my tongue. That's random. Um, <laughs> I'm very aware that these are not people, you know, who went to school, don't have degrees in theater or anything like that. I get it. However, I can't help if there's a part of me that's just like, oh, wow, that was said with absolutely no emotion whatsoever. You know, like your your character is a robot. Like, I need a little bit more from you. Uh, with that being said, this season and only the first two episodes, I give a lot of praise to the acting from a lot of these uh, actors who I weren't I wasn't sure if they were capable of it. There's the positive. Here's the negative. It feels as though they did the entire season in just these last two episodes. Honestly, it could end. If they would have given it maybe 10 more minutes, this could have actually been the entire series. 
And it was confusing because, you know, you, you feel like you're being introduced to these characters again several years later in 1994. And this is in the first episode. And there are several things that begin to come along with each of the characters. There may be spoilers, just, uh, just so you misfits know. So as always, there are segment markers in the description. So you can click on those if you want to jump ahead. However, you see uh, Blanca in a new relationship. Uh, keep in mind, we have no clue what happened to her last boyfriend. She was really happy and then he was gone. There is no explanation, but you're going to see a trend when it comes to that. So we don't know what happened to him. However, she has a new boyfriend. So then there's uh, <laughs> Damon. And I almost feel like I want to hold on to that for the end. But I'll go ahead and I'll talk about that now. So in the first episode, you find, you know, Damon's back from uh, that was Paris that he went to. Right. Uh, so he's back. And there's a point where they're you know preparing for an intervention or in the midst of an intervention or maybe that was the second episode i think this the intervention may have been the second episode well in the first episode damon takes uh pray tell into his bedroom with him and you know he sees pray tell sees everything uh that damon has been using to kind of center himself a lot of it having to do with buddhism so Damon presents him with a book, which I'm assuming is like uh, Alcohol Anonymous, um, AA, so that, you know, it could be something that could help him. Pray tell wants nothing to do with it. So you're sitting here as a viewer like, well, when when did AA happen? Like, when did when did he become an alcoholic? When, meaning Damon, when did that take place? So fast forward to episode two and he's gone. We are informed by Blanca that he relapsed. And he went to live with his cousin. And they made sure to put in the script for Blanca to say he's gone forever. So I, I have some questions. Why is it that we were... And, and here's the deal. I am fully aware of what's taking place in real life. Which, you know, they've stated that he had... Uh, I believe it was a death in his family. I think it may have been his sister. Forgive me if I'm wrong when it comes to that. Either way, there was a, a family issue that made it so he had to leave. How and ever, my thing is, did it have to be for good? Now, everything that I'm saying right now, you completely ignore if by the end of, you know, the next five episodes, we see him again. However, my thing is, is that if whatever happened in his personal life was so serious that you needed to write him off the show altogether, you could have given us a lot more than he relapsed and had to go live with his cousin. First of all, where the hell did the cousin come from? If that was the case, why did he ever need to go to New York after his parents threw him out? That's my question. If he had family members that accepted him for who he is, then couldn't he have gone to live with them from the very beginning? The first season was almost all about Damon and his journey of discovering self, you know? Through Damon is how you were introduced to the rest of the family. So it had a lot to do with his story. So for me, there's an issue with you just writing him off and saying he went to live with his cousin and we're never going to see him again. His character deserved more. Even if his physical being couldn't be there, his character deserved more than saying he relapsed. Relapsed? The character that started the damn show relapsed and we never hear anything from him again. 
I'm genuinely hoping that that's just Blanca's character saying we'll never see him again and not the writers making it clear to us that we'll never see him again. Because if that's the case, I call BS. So that's one thing. Another thing is I have always thought, even now, mind you, this this may sound hypocritical of me if I as I just can I just you know talked about how a queer black man was the main character of the first season. But with that being said, with that being said, we came into it looking like okay, this is Damon's story. But throughout the time of watching the show, you came to understand the beauty and complexity of all of our trans sisters that are in the show. So it became more their show than it was Damon's, which is why season two made sense. However, even in the midst of that, it felt as though Pray Tell was the main character. And that never made sense to me. Damon being the main character, yes. Blanca or Angel or Electra, all of them being main characters, that made sense. Not Pray Tell, you know? And I always saw him as being someone who, of course, was vital to the show, but wasn't the main person. And I feel like that is what they continue to try to drive home, is how important he is to the show. And for all I know, it could be the acting. You know, Billy Porter could be such a great actor that he just takes up the screen. In whatever scene he's in, it feels as though it's pulling away. Because we can't say that he has more scenes than anybody else. Blanca has a story that we're getting to see a lot of this season. You feel me? Um, but it, it's just like, it, it consistently feels this way to me, and it felt that way in season two as well. That, and it may, it may also be that he gets the, the majority of the awards come award season, which I think is unfair. And I truly hope that this time around, that's not what we see for the nominations for season three. It's not that I don't want him to be nominated. Of course, of course he deserves to be nominated. However, can we also shine a light on the rest of the cast that's a part of the show as well? Absolutely, especially MJ Rodriguez. You know, she has come a long way. Seriously, you know. Um, so that's just just that's just my thoughts about it. Uh, I'm bothered by what it is that they've done with Damon. Uh, I'm disappointed that there are only seven episodes. And I really want us to give more shine to all of the rest of the characters before this season comes to an end. I can say as another positive that I'm very happy that, um, what were their names? Was it Lamar and Cubby? Uh, I appreciate that these two bit characters from the last two seasons, the writers chose to give far bigger roles in season three. You know, two of Electra's kids. I really, really liked that. To me, that made sense. You know, we've had these characters on here for, you know, the, the entire run of the show. Here's an opportunity for us to be able to shine a brighter light on who they are. And that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed a lot. Uh, and then after we leave the scripted show and we go into real life, I wanted to touch on what took place with Janet Mock. So... They had the premiere for Pose, which was the first red carpet premiere for anything since the pandemic began. So news ended up breaking about Janet Mock and this speech that she got when, uh, excuse me, the speech that she gave when she was on stage. So I personally feel as though she had a mental breakdown. Uh, she got up there and she began to complain about her pay 
and what it is that she feels as though as a writer and producer she should receive which you know it's like okay well that that's understandable um whether or not this is the place to do it you know that can be argued but we definitely understand that especially if you're being paid less than all of the other writers and producers however she went further in her breakdown and one of the things that took place is that she uh told i don't believe she asked she told her boyfriend uh angel I, i'm my apologies if i'm pronouncing his last name incorrectly curiel i believe it is uh he plays uh little poppy on pose asked him to stand up and she went forward with explaining to him his first time hearing it and everybody there that she had been unfaithful to him and I can't even imagine how he must have felt in that moment for something so private being told to everyone and he's learning at the exact same time. So that's just, you know, two of the things that ended up happening. There was more, but those are the two things that really made, you know, news. So I want to say this. We know how human beings are. So immediately when this took place, everybody is, you know gagging and gossiping and saying all of these negative things one of the things that bothered me the most was that i kept seeing online people are talking about how janet messed this up with him and there were even some people who were, who were saying that if janet had to cheat then clearly you know he wasn't doing what it is he needed to do sad <laughs> sad sad that that's where human beings jump to that that's the place where people go the truth is, is that she had a mental breakdown, no different from uh, Dave Chappelle, no different from Martin Lawrence. It takes place. And the truth is, is that Janet Mock went into this, I'm sure, hoping that Pose would be a success. How and ever, we don't know if she expected it to be the success that it was, you know? Who knows when it first began if she knew that she was going to be a writer, producer, and director. You feel me? Who knew? Who knows if she was prepared for everything that was going to come along with this particular journey? Maybe it became too much. Maybe it became overwhelming. And when that happens, we don't know when the is going to happen. We have no clue when the snap will take place. So it just so happened that it took place on that stage. Now, it's not to say that she didn't have things bubbling up already. You feel me? For all we know, this could have been calculated and she could have been fully aware when she got on those, that stage of what she was going to say. That doesn't mean that the breakdown didn't happen before that. So what I'm asking for is for people to have space and grace when it comes to her. Space and grace is my friend Mike. Uh, originally said to me and it's definitely something that I enjoy using now because it's true. We provide space and grace for the people that we want to, but if we feel as though something is wrong and incorrect, we no longer hold that space and grace. And that's a problem for me. I don't know Janet Mock personally. I know some people who do, but I don't even need to hold conversations with them to create space for her, you know? And we can do both. We can hold space for Janet and we can hold space for Angel. We can do that at the exact same time. Why is it that the first thing that people go for is tearing other people down? The answer is simple. You know, oftentimes we are dealing with our own shit and we're not really taking into consideration how we project that onto others. Messiness can be fun for people. 
but it's only messy because we don't want to pay attention to what it is that we're that's going on in our own lives so what's the next best thing well let me celebrate your downfall instead keep in mind before this we were all championing you but now that we've seen you you've fallen let's make sure that we put some extra gas on that fire and this is disappointing this is also humanity so i want to say this because i'm fairly certain angel nor janet will more than likely ever hear this i hold space for both of you i can't imagine what either of you are going through right now for angel if this was Janet's uh, first moment of infidelity in your relationship, I implore you to be able to work through this with her. If in the end you make a decision that you can no longer stay, that's understandable. However, far too many people are willing to drop a relationship off of one moment of infidelity instead of attempting to stick it out, see it through, and do the work. And for me in instances like that, I ask the person, how much did you care about this person? How much did you love them? How much did you like them? Because if you were wrapped up in the idea of love, then of course, after one moment of infidelity, you can move on, especially if everything else in the relationship was absolutely fine. If you all were happy all the way up to that moment, and then that minute, that moment, excuse me, of infidelity makes you leave, how invested were you in the beginning? You were invested in the idea of love, not necessarily of the person that you were with. So I implore you to take the steps with her to see if this will actually work. If you do that and you find that you still don't think that you're there, if you are officially disconnected, then of course, move on to your next chapter. And to Janet, I would ask that you take a moment to step away. I'm fully aware that everything is going on with Pose right now and maybe you're supposed to be one of the faces or things like that. Here's your opportunity to step away, to let everybody know I'm going through something really serious right now because my thing is, if you decide to stay because it's business and because you need to do this or you need to do that, that is you then putting your career over your own life and that's not healthy there is a good chance that you doing that is what got you to where you are right now this is a moment for you to be able to show up for you to advocate for you to want the healing for you this isn't for anyone else what you do for you will then trickle onto others you taking care of you the way you need to will then trickle onto angel it will allow you to show up as your full self and have no need to lie and to be dishonest to the person that you love. This is an opportunity for you to pause and to say, I am bringing this particular chapter to an end so that I can press play and start with a new one. Here's an opportunity for you to love you. And that is my advice to the both of you. Misfit Universe, I implore any of you who are listening right now to lean a little bit more into love. Judgment, that's something that happens naturally with all of us. Even I do that, you know, that, that's just a part of being human. However, it's one thing to judge and to just skip along and make that just a part of who you are. It's another thing to stop in moments and to say, but why am I saying this? Why am I actually doing this? I'm human, so it more than likely will happen again, but if I can make sure that I'm stopping myself and asking myself the tough questions when I do do these things, 
I may reach a point where it's not happening anymore. I can evolve. I can vibrate higher than what it is that I'm doing. And I really think that that's something that all of us should seek to do is to vibrate higher than those low places that we are. But that's how I feel. Uh, we are going to get ready to go into my conversation with Hari. I've been looking forward to this for a while, Misfit Universe, and I really hope that you all enjoy it. Hari is a screenwriter, the editor-in-chief of Race Bader, and the best-selling author of Black Boy Out of Time. They are a 2021 Lambda Literary Fellow, and their writing has been featured in Vanity Fair, Gawker, Out, The Guardian, Huffington Post, Ebony, Mike, Slate, and Salon, among other publications. Misfit Universe, I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. And now my conversation with Hari Ziad. And I'll see you on the other side. Well, hello there, Hari. How are you? I'm doing all right. I had a long day, but I'm going to end it on a good note talking to you. Oh, that makes me feel good. That makes How me feel are good. you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I actually just returned back from uh, Baltimore. I was there for a week seeing my family and friends on vacation. Is that where you're from? Yeah, yeah. I just realized we've never talked about that before. (laughs) I think I have seen you post something about being from Baltimore before though, now that you mentioned it. I don't think it was until I read Black Boy Out of Time that I knew about Cleveland for you. Yeah. (laughs) I I would have never guessed it either, like ever. Where do I look like I, or sound like I'm from? (laughs) Your, Your energy has always given me one of the coasts. Like it's given me either New York or California. Well, I've been here in New York for about 10 years, so maybe that's why. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And we've only shared space once. And how long ago was that? 2014, 15, something like that? Yeah, that's been like five, six years ago. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I realized that you. Well, no, I guess that would make sense for the amount of time that you were there. I was gonna say I didn't think that you had been in New York for that long, but that would make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I came here for undergrad, so that was like when I was seventeen. Um, so actually, I've been here for twelve years. Oh my god! Oh here. wow. Okay. Well, they they say once you uh, once you hit ten years, you are official New Yorker. So. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. That was actually going to be the next question I was going to ask you. I was going to say, if if you could think of off the top of your head where your journey would take you next, do you know where you would go? Yes, I'll be in LA because um, the moves that are being made will be TV type things. And that's what I've always wanted to do anyway. Okay. Um, and so now some things seem to be finally happening and right now everything's virtual so i don't have to move there but ultimately if i want to continue doing work at tv um it's good to be there so that's the next step so when you say hollywood do you mean as far as writing producing like writing for television yes okay awesome um so yeah i mean that's the the, that's always been the goal. I went to film school thinking I wanted to write for film and then that morphed into TV. Um, then kind of got into the journalism, um, nonfiction 
stuff, but that was more <laughs> of just, you know, everything that was going on and like wanting to work through some shit. Um, and then that opened up the doors to go back to where my passion lies. So okay. really interesting how that happened. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, so, okay. I'm going to get into our race beta a little later on, because of course, you know that I want to talk to you about race beta. But uh, I wanted to start off by asking you, what are your healing practices? Um, that's a great question. I need to ask myself more often because I'm exhausted recently. <laughs> I haven't been doing my healing practices. My, the main thing that I do um, the consistently is altar work. Um, I have an altar for my ancestors. Um, right now, particularly my mother and my grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, and I try to do work on that regularly. Um, it's very centering. Um, I talk about it a little bit in the book, but um, it really is just a space where I can ground myself in energy of the people that I know are looking out for me yeah. uh, and try to receive those messages by like listening to what's going through my body instead of um, always questioning myself. I struggle with anxiety, so there's always these questions and doubts and things like that and altar work is how i cut through them yeah um and yeah i also have been trying to you know stay active physically i just bought a well my partner just bought me a bike um i love the outdoors that's another reason why i have to leave new york at least in the cold months because being outside is like where i heal mm -hmm. really the sun um is very healing for me um so i just try to get out as much as possible one of the things that when i moved back from north carolina at the beginning of the year i noticed that i was just because there's covid and it was cold like i was stuck inside the whole time yeah and it didn't hit me until a little bit later like oh like i can actually affect this by making active decisions to be out in nature um buying plants um, although this one's not doing too well right now. Because <laughs> another one. Um, and yeah, just being in community with other people. Like, I feel like my healing is almost always directly tied to the kinds of energy I'm getting from other people. Mm. And that is what well, families are a really big, important thing for me. Um, I'm in family therapy, working through the grief of my mother passing. Yeah. Uh, then I'm also doing individual therapy. Um, so yeah, when I'm on top of my things, I'm hitting all of those notes <laughs> and staying yeah, healthy. Yeah. healthy. Um, but um, yeah, I definitely have just gotten kind of overwhelmed recently. And so I've been trying to work my way back to regular practice. So with this being a mental health podcast, I'm always listening for when people mention things like uh, therapy, anxiety, and things of that nature. So if it's not, you know, I don't want it to be triggering or anything like that. Uh, if you could, you know, touch on your journey with your anxiety, just for the, uh, my, my audience, I call them the, the misfits. We're a part of the misfit universe. I love so, that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so if you could talk to the misfits briefly about what your journey has been like with anxiety, what it has looked like for you and how you've uh, kind of worked to heal yourself through it. Yeah, um, I don't know. I've, I've had anxiety for as long as I can remember, but I didn't know that that's what it was. Yeah. 
um, and only more recently I've been able to name that. Um, and I talk a lot about this in the book, but this idea of like the things that I have to police in myself before the world polices them for me, yeah. really like what my anxiety is rooted in. Like I'll be the first one who's like, I'm, I messed up before anybody else like even would even consider that. Um, and so I move through interactions and um, engaging with the public, which my work caused me to do constantly with that voice that's like policing myself um, around how I present and what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of what therapy has been able to do and all of these healing practices have been able to do is tell me that that's not just about um, this like antagonistic force that lives in my head, but for a lot of that, it's um, a part of me that's not being tended to, that's just asking for something that, um, that I'm not giving to that part. And a lot of times um, what it's asking for is for me to be aware of how terrifying it can be to be in these different situations as a black queer person. Um, and so a lot of my healing has looked like in therapy and in um, relation to my anxiety has been to uh, acknowledge and honor when it comes up. And I think that's why the book is so centered on inner child work is because it's easy for me to see that part of myself as like the childhood version of me. Mm -hmm. um, my anxiety comes up, it's usually this childhood part of me and like they need something from me. And um, how can I tend to that and protect them and keep them safe? Yeah. Um, is the framing that I, I try to tr have with my anxiety nowadays. But um, yeah, that's been mostly my, and that's only been possible once I've been able to like acknowledge that that's what it was. Um, because I'm like, this is probably everything, someone, something that everybody goes through. And I, on some level it is. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean you you don't have tools to to deal with it, and that doesn't yeah. mean it's not affecting your life. Um, and so yeah, that's where I am now in my anxiety journey. I think people take for granted uh, what you said as far as you know you you were only able to get there. I think people take for granted that part of the journey. You know, it's like you you have to first acknowledge it. You if you don't know that it's there, you'll continue to operate from a certain space. You know, right. so like getting to the point where you actually can acknowledge, oh, this is where it derives from. Got you. Okay, so now I can begin to attempt to do the work to heal through there. Uh, one of the biggest problems that I find uh, on campus with my kids working with them is that oftentimes they don't even know where their anxiety or their depression, where it comes from, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so they're operating, they're under the impression this is just life. This right. is supposed to be, this is who I am. So I appreciate you saying that because, you know, for someone listening, it may just be a statement that you made on the way to the end of your sentence. But that's, that's really powerful because if you don't figure out or get a better understanding of where it came from, then you'll find yourself just constantly in this loop of depression and anxiety over and over, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And you'll... If you, I mean, you'll, it's kind of weird because you're both like, this is just who I am. And you're also like, there's something wrong with right. me. <laughs> you're not able to reconcile those two things. Um, and so, yeah, definitely being able to like have 
language for what that was. Yeah. Uh, also to realize that like, yes, this is something memeable, but it's also like something that you is you is not just you something you have to live with. Like this yeah. is not the state of being that you're uh, you're fated to always <laughs> exist under. Um, was really really important also. But I think when I first realized like, oh, okay, this might be what I'm struggling with. I also was like, but there's nothing I can do about it. Mm. <laughs> That's like two separate steps that I needed to take. Um, and my therapist has been really helpful with taking that step. And the main way that he has been helpful is by acknowledging that um, there are a bunch of external forces that are systemic and that we don't have control over. And um, that was what I didn't want to get lost in doing this work. Yeah. I, I can I know that a lot of my anxiety is rooted in the fact that I'm a black queer person in this world. And like, I don't want someone to be like, well, I mean, you just have to stop thinking about that. Um, so it, it had to take acknowledging that this is part of these, this structure of the, the world that we live in. But within that world, there are still some things that you can do um, to help build a new world for yeah. yourself, um, which is where I am now. When it comes to therapy, did you have to work yourself up to being comfortable enough to go to a therapist or was it just natural for you? Like, did you immediately say to yourself, well, once you reach that point, once you reach the point of believing that you needed help outside of yourself, did you say, I should go to a therapist or was it something where you kind of fought against it initially? Yeah, no, I definitely didn't want to go initially um, because like I um, wrote in the book, like I felt like for me, therapy had been this place where like if you were struggling with things like this and if you were angry at the world, like it was going to um, try and erase that. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, there's no place for this rage, this very deep rage that I knew was not only legitimate, but um, righteous. Like who can live under this world and just be okay with it? Yeah. Uh, so I didn't want to, I didn't want to be okay with the world. I thought that that's what therapy would be trying to do. Mm. I couldn't do that. Um, and so, realizing that you can try to be okay with yourself within the world absolutely um, as, a, as a separate process but it, that also takes a skilled um, practitioner like not part of the reason that i was resistant is because that was some of my earlier experiences with therapy in college um, um, but going to someone who was black who was queer um, who's my therapist now um, is just easier to for us to get to that place yeah. um, where I wasn't afraid that, you know, you're just trying to get me to be okay with the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it's funny that you would say that because uh, you spoke uh, when you were younger and you had a therapist. I tell that story often about how when I was in my early 20s, uh, I had my first therapist. Uh, he was South Asian. And it was pretty much all of the stereotypes that I feared that it would be, you know, mm -hmm. Um, and it felt like I was talking to myself and not in the sense of what they teach us, you know, the way that we're supposed to talk to our clients and the way that we help them by repeating back some of the things that they say to us as a way of being able to get them to get their answers. He didn't do that. It was almost like he was just laying back and getting paid for just being there, you know? So in listening to what you were saying, I'm like, it. what I want the misfits to know is that when you're 
building a relationship with a therapist, you don't have to say to yourself, because I have this one person, I have to stick with them. If you feel like they don't work for you, you can always find the person who truly fits, you know? Like my um, my therapist that I have now, a beautiful elder, her spirit is phenomenal. She's a Scorpio like I am. Um, very deep into spirituality. I can talk about astrology and she's there with me, you know? So it's yeah. like, you you need that person that clicks with you. And if not, you don't have right. to feel as though you're, you're stuck there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is also, I mean, the other part of that is that um, the whole process of finding a therapist can be difficult. So like mm -hmm. you go through all these hoops and you get to the person and they don't work out and you're like, I don't want to do that again. I think that is also like very, very real. Absolutely. Um, and that's why like community is so great. Like I found this therapy through a friend who suggested it and um, I'm always looking to try it when I'm suggesting to him, like thinking about how that it aligns with the person that I'm suggesting. But there are also all these barriers to therapy that are it's really legitimate. Um, and that is real. Like we, in part of the world that I didn't want to stop hating because of right. it. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that it's a privilege. You feel me? Yeah. Um, it is absolutely a privilege that everyone doesn't have access to. And here in this country, that's something that I think it's important for us to work on. Uh, I tell my uh, clients all the time at my job, because I work with uh, youth, they're 17 to 24. And I tell them, I'm like, you're, you're blessed because in this program, you get what a lot of people have to pay a lot of money for outside of here. Uh, mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I also advocate for them because what you said is very important. And I don't think I've talked about that on the podcast before about how there are some people who will become really exhausted having to tell their story over and over again. And, you know, my clients have said that uh, one of my clients, she's about to be on her fifth therapist. And it took some, you know, we had to have some conversations, some tough conversations because she was done. And she was like, I, I've told because she's uh, she's trans. And she was like, you know, as a transgendered young woman, I don't want to have to tell my story over and over again to people who I feel are perfect strangers. You right. know, it's like after I tell them my story, we begin to build the relationship. But then after a while, they vanish and I have to tell my story over again. Right. So I'm glad that you brought that up because that's something I don't talk about enough on the podcast. And I think I need to do, to do that more. Um, it's one thing to, you know, want to be on the journey to even say to yourself, I want a therapist. But what does that look like when you feel as though you have to keep building that relationship? And according to how deep your trauma is, how troubling that could be. So right. Right. I'm glad you said that. You rock for that. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you uh, if you could define what it means to be Black and non-binary in America in 2021. Um, yeah. Um, what it means to be Black in 2021 is what it means to be Black in many other times. I, I think um, what we're facing now is just an extension of what we've been facing for 500 years. Um, and so when I'm thinking about my Blackness, I'm thinking about it like in relation to um, the overall position that we're in. And we know from like um, research around like um, any of the like big disparities, wealth disparities and things that those gaps stay the same, even as like within the um, timeline, like different things shift. Like I'm definitely in a different position than my mother was. Um, but I think as black people, we're still suffering 
through a state that is designed to to treat us as commodities mm. um, so i don't know if that's any different in 2021 um aside from what i hope is that we are collectively um being more able to imagine moving outside of this timeline um like way out of time is, is speaking to um how we can reshape our ideas of time so that we um aren't just looking into the future but we start building now the type of reality that we want existence in um and to be non-binary today um is to be non-binary in general is connected to my blackness like uh, black people aren't afforded the way that white people are or other people of color are um existence within the gender binary um where we were brought here um for those of us who are descendants of enslaved people as like i said commodities not as gender people and um that ungendering process in the same way that all of the other things that we face as black people is the same today and so um i think that is very related to like the um the lack of um being able to like achieve gender particularly as queer people and like yeah. fit all of these ideals um and it's also related to the ways we beat ourselves up about not being able to fit into those ideals and so when i'm claiming to be a black non-binary person um, um i'm thinking about how i don't have to continue to do that like i can recognize how these this binary was never set up for me was never set up for me to be able to love myself and to exist within my body in a free way um and that i need a new conception of how i think about myself and my gender um, in order for that to um to be able to grant me the type of freedom that i think my gender should have yeah So that's what it means to be black and non-binary for me. So I have uh three youth on my caseload uh who are non who are non-binary. And the journey that they go through with those in our campus who don't really understand or quote unquote get it can be very difficult especially for me being, you know, somebody who advocates for them, standing kind of on the outside watching what it is that they go through. Uh mm-hmm. so if you could speak to them, those who are listening to the podcast right now who have a similar journey to yours what would your advice be as far as the way that they should advocate for themselves moving throughout this country and the world mm that's a great question i mean i think ultimately what uh, my experience was growing up and like thinking about gender is that i knew what i needed to do and how I needed to advocate but what I didn't know is that I was empowered to do that mm. and so what I hope that I can leave with folks and I don't know if there's any like um specific sentence that I can say right now but I think that this is what my work exists to do is to remind um queer people in general but also definitely um specifically non-binary people um that there is space that they can create for themselves that has been already created for them through their ancestors mm-hmm. I'm creating that other people who are doing this work around gender have created where they can exist um fully and so I hope that when they engage with this work um and particularly when they're looking back at, and I guess what the advice would be with to 
um, always be able to, to look back at what the, our, our ancestors have done. Um, we didn't just pop up this year with the idea that, you know, the gender binary doesn't work for us, Yeah. Um, even though it's much more popularized now. So I think looking back at that history of how, how Black people have worked through gender can be really that empowering force that allows us to to feel more um, to, to be able to move in our existence right now um, without that shame and without the policing that we do to our ourselves because there's only so much we can do with the outside world but yeah. i want them to feel empowered within themselves that they don't have to do they don't have to do the work of the world yeah, and I think that starts with, with looking at where we come from. I appreciate you saying what you said as far as, you know, uh, I'm not quoting you verbatim, but non-binary people didn't just show up out of nowhere. I appreciate you saying that because there are a lot of cishet and queer people who would say that in a heartbeat, you know? Um, there are people who like to say, you know, all of these different terminologies that we've just created that appeared out of nowhere. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not just like out of nowhere, somebody woke up and was like, this is a thing and everybody followed behind it. Like you said, you know, when you look out into the world now, more people are using it, but it's not to say that people who consider themselves non-binary non haven't always existed, you know? Right, yeah. And I mean, and that's why like the, I mean, the archives are also whitewashed. And so a lot of that will be white. And you have to know where to look, but, when you do start researching um, and find like the people who have been compiling these resources um, about these histories, and thankfully I have friends like Ahmad Green who is a historian, um, and like that's a name that you can reach out to if you want to start thinking about. Right. <laughs> He's a historian about like the church and things, but um, I think it's really, really. Um, helpful to to be able to like pinpoint those things and they also these people existed in our families like if you start doing those research and you there are a lot of interesting things that you start to um see yeah uh, like i've discovered people that in my family tree that i didn't know were queer that just from doing the research around my own ancestor work so um, i think you start with your family and go from there and um, you'll find proof of exactly what you're saying. Absolutely. Uh, Misfits, so I'm laughing right now because I told Hari at the beginning of it that this interview would only be about 30 minutes. <laughs> and I think we're 30 minutes in. <laughs> I have like four more questions to ask. <laughs> okay, so uh, the next few questions are kind of lengthy, so I'm going to read them. Uh, the next question is, I'd like for you to talk to me about Miss Afropedia. Uh, in your book, you coined this term, or let me know, I, I'm under the impression you coined it. I believe that's what you said in the book. Uh, can you break down its definition and how it shows up in society at this very moment? Yeah, so I don't like the term coin, but I this is a term that um, I put together um, and it is about the ways, it, the definition is the uh, anti-Black disdain that Black children in particular experience. It's rooted in the term misopedia, which just means the hatred and disdain of children. Um, but I think the ways that Black children in particular experience this type of oppression and bigotry is specific. And I wanted to point to that because I think um, we're part of a project that's always trying to separate us from our childhood 
Um, and I'm using childhood as um, this uh, as, as, as a term to mean like the freedom that we were born into before we start adopting all of these other um, ideas that are taught to us by a white supremacist system. Mm -hmm. um, and we see that in how black children are adultified, like with Makia, uh, who was shot and killed in, in Columbus yesterday, yeah. uh, right after the George Floyd, um, Derek Chauvin trial ended, or right before. Mm -hmm. uh, and people are just calling her a young woman. Um, and just the ways that we talk about black childhoods and, and um, ascribe different um, ideas onto them, calling young girls fast in specific ways, mm -hmm. um, sexual, over-sexualizing children, um, and ultimately not protecting them from the harms that um, that they face moving about in this world. That is all an, uh, a, an example for me of misafropedia. And it's so central to the book because the book is also about inner child work. And so I was thinking about the ways and reasons that we get separated from our childhoods and so i needed that term um, to describe what those things were um, and i walked through how that has shown up in my life um, and all the barriers that i have between myself and my um, inner child um, that's caused by these these uh, these ideas that are harmful to black children so it's funny because when I decided I was going to ask you that question, I went back into the book again because I was like, okay, I want to read his breakdown for, you know, why he came up with this again. And I didn't realize that it was the name of the prologue. And when I saw that, I was like, how did I completely look back? <laughs> like the, the word is big as day right there. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize that that's where they put it. <laughs> and I paid no attention to that. I just, I'm reading through and I was like, oh, wow, that's really, that's really cool what they came up with. Okay. <laughs> moment. Um, so uh, why race baiter? Um, race baiter, um, the platform why, and then I'll get into the name in a, in a moment, is because I was writing, I started writing um, after I graduated college, I went to film school, and I was like, oh, these stories that I want to tell, like I wasn't finding any outlets to tell them through the um, journey that I was going through to uh, the television industry, at least. And so I wanted to still get those stories out. Like mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that I was working through, still trying to understand. And the way that I learn about things and learn about myself is through yeah. writing. Um, and so I was, I was uh, freelancing a little bit as a journalist, but a lot of the stories about blackness and about abolition in particular, um, it was just not finding homes. Like this was, I think now we are able to have a few more conversations more widely about abolishing the police and defunding the police. Um, and, but even even now it's, it's not that um, widely, you, you're not gonna get editor to respond to a lot of your pitches. <laughs> and so I wanted to create this space um, that was initially just for me to, to write about these things and then and kind of just took off and other people started asking if they could publish there and it grew into this space where um, now I have a small team of part-time um, editors um, where we publish other people exclusively and it's completely mm -hmm. funded by our donors. I mean I named it Race Bader because I knew when we start to have these conversations that was the charge that people are going to lob at us. Mm -hmm. um, when you're talking about blackness without 
ever uh, capitulating to the white gaze. You're a race baiter, you're playing the race card, all of these things. And so I wanted to name that up front so that it didn't have to keep coming back as this thing that we had to respond to yeah. um, because we already know that that's not the, the type of energy that we're trying to, to engage. Yeah. And so that is why race baiter. I, uh, I take, cause it's been a while since I was uh, constantly posting, but I took great pride in promoting race baiter on my revolution page. I saw, thank you so much for all of that support. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It was, it was so like, it, it just felt good, you know, like reading those pieces. And then after reading them, just put, putting them on the page and pressing send, I knew, and <laughs> I for for me, I wanted people to be educated. But honestly, I guess the 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 petty side of me <laughs> really wanted to stick it to some of the white people that I had on my timeline. <laughs> I was like, I want you to read this, and I want you to be in your feelings because you need, <laughs> you know, um, because at that point when I was promoting it all the time, we weren't exactly where we are now, you know. Um, and I'm like, there there were certain conversations. Like what, what happened with George Floyd and you know how people are saying that there are certain white people who refuse to acknowledge certain things until that happened. And it was, you couldn't really deny it when it was happening in front of your face for nine minutes, you know? Mm. Um, so at that point, before all of that took place, there were a lot of excuses that people could still use. And so I loved constantly posting articles from Race Braider because I'm like, when you read this, it's in front of your face unapologetically. And if there's anything that I love about your site, it's the fact that it's unapologetic and that we need more websites like that, you know? Thank you. I, I hope that there are tons of race painters moving into the future. Um, unfortunately, with COVID, we've had to like scale back the amount of publishing that we've done. Um, but my hope is also that we, we start to get back on the swing of things. Um, but yeah, thank you for all of that. And that's exactly the type of work that we were trying to do in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, as I'm conversing with you, I'm realizing, you know, for all the years that we've known each other, there's still, as far as the, the, your life trajectory, between reading the book and having this conversation, I didn't realize how many things we had in common. As I'm listening to you, I'm like, I want so badly to find out your natal chart. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, wow. I didn't realize I had so many, so many things in common with you. That's, that's really, really cool. That's cool. Uh, okay. So my next question and black boy out of time, you talk about attending your aunt Cheryl's funeral and how you make it your business to stay away from churches, mosques, and temples. What was it like being raised Harry Krishna? Did I get it right? Harry Krishna. Harry. <laughs> I'm like, I want to get it right. <laughs> Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. There we go. What was it like being raised Hare Krishna? And how did it impact where you stand in your faith today? Uh, that's a great question. And I also, like, at the time that the funeral happened, uh, it was a different time than now. I don't know if I have the same, like, visceral reaction to churches and mosques and temples anymore. But um, what was it was like being raised as a Hare Krishna um, was interesting. Um, I didn't realize that it was like something othered really growing mm -hmm. up because I had this big family. I have 18 siblings um, and my mother also homeschooled 
most of us until we were in college. And so, so much of what we did was together and in community with other Hare Krishnas. Um, and yeah, so it was like, I didn't really feel that part of it. Like it, it, it was just like, oh, I experienced, I just have a different religion than my cousins. And because there, our family was so multi-faith anyway, we had Jehovah's Witnesses, my dad's Muslim. Like that was just kind of the reality that I lived in. Um, now to be a black Hare Krishna within the midst of that was a very different um, experience. Um, so much of the community and a lot of it's like there are lots of black devotees who have been pushing against this and challenging it um, but it's very much like you once you join like we just kind of pretend like any of the um, identification markers that you might have had otherwise like just yeah. don't exist even though no one has reckoned with their anti-blackness or their anything their homophobia um, so clearly there was still all of that but it was never really talked about um, and so um, I kind of grew up um, resenting it for that reason but also understanding that anti-blackness is everywhere um, and then um, when I got to like high school um, I was able to when my mother and father always gave us like we knew that we'd be able to explore religion our, ourselves like it was never they do a lot of interfaith work too um, their faith is really important to them and, and especially for my mother like she wanted us to be in that community but if you could find God anywhere like that's great um, which is really what le leads me gave me the foundation for where I am now which is like I feel like I have found what God means for me um, that's very different from from what it was for her but I was only able to do that because of now I'm able to um, honor and, and acknowledge how intentional that was with uh, for her yeah. in her own journey to as a black woman to like choose to be a Hare Krishna in the 70s. Um, so yeah, it's it interesting. <laughs> it still is interesting to have connections to that community. Um, but I also like really appreciate it. Um, and really appreciate that my father is Muslim and really appreciate that we had so much uh, exposure to uh, of the church, the black church outside of that through our extended family. Um, even though so much of the, all of my family is like, were able to tie homophobia to their spiritual beliefs, mm. which is what I'm writing about in that chapter. Yeah. When would it be safe for me to find God in this way? Um, and that's why um, African traditional religions have been so um, powerful in my life because I feel like I could take all of the good things that um, I felt in church and gospel choir. I was in gospel choir in high school and in the temple and in the mosque and build it around something that centers blackness and something that has space for queer people. Um, and in a lot of ways, I feel much closer to to my upbringing because of that. Um, but it took a while to get here. Yeah, yeah. Definitely took a while to get here. I was listening. I'm like, it was kind of full circle. Like the way <laughs> it came around. Yes. Okay. So uh, Mother Boomy was your grandmother. And Black Boy Out of Time, you explained to your readers that you never came out to her, or as I like to say, liberated your spirit to her. A lot of the misfits listening now may be struggling with a similar journey. Do you have any advice that you could impart on them? 
just in terms of struggling with the idea that someone they lost never they never came out or someone that's living in their life right um, now. yeah somebody that's living now and they want to be able to you know come out to them or liberate their spirit but they're 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 scared uh, whether it out of its uh whether it is out of a sense of respect and love or it could be out of a sense of fear you know yeah. i think like to honor that part of your like you don't owe anybody that story as yeah. the main thing and um, i don't feel bad that i didn't tell my, my grandmother that. Mm -hmm. um i do like wish we could have connected around that and i'm able to explore the possibility of doing that through my auto work with her yeah. and so i think like knowing that there are other ways to um to engage that mm -hmm. um, and that like this life isn't the only one that there is gives you more space to like honor whatever legitimate fears that you might have around that mm -hmm. um, and i think while you're doing that it's really important to be able to distinguish between like which of those fears are self-imposed and which are like real like my grandmother like that just wasn't she was not at a place where she would have been able to engage with that um just based on the fact that like all of the mental health struggles that she had in her health and um, the relationship that we were building but we hadn't really got a chance to completely build um and so but there's also a part of me that um i was i was afraid and i was scared and i was putting that on myself yeah. um, and i'm only now able to separate that and still be like i would still not tell her now because i can see that a lot of that was not for me uh, was not on me um, and so i think it's important to do that work it helps to do that work in therapy obviously but it also um, that's where inner child work can come in um, and figuring out where these fears exactly are coming from and which you have the power to address and which that you don't. Um, but my main takeaway would be that you don't owe that to anyone um, and that the relationships that you want to build with people aren't limited to this realm. Yeah, that part, that part right there. Um, I wanted to go deeper into the conversation. You had mentioned your... Uh, your grandmother and her mental health journey. I wanted to go into uh, being bipolar, but that would take this interview in a totally different direction, which would make it like an hour and a half. So <laughs> I'll invite you. you yeah, know, I have to come back. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, I'll I'll end with this question: What has the feedback been uh, for Black Boy Out of Time? What has it been, and how has it impacted you? The uh, the response that you've received to the book. Yeah, I mean, the sponsors have been all over. You've had, you know, your white racists that are like, oh my God, he blames everything on white people. Um, which, because <laughs> the book was an Amazon first reads, um, it, it got into the hands of like just a wide variety of people. Um, so that's been interesting. And also, I don't really care about that. Um, <laughs> response to the book has been really beautiful people have told me that it's helped them heal through some of their relationships and their relationship with themselves um it's exposed people to the concept of inner child work that they might not have um been exposed to before um and it's really given them tools to start their spiritual healing journeys 
Um, and to tie that to like our liberation is a healing process. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's exactly what I wanted to the book to do. So um, I'm super grateful for that. Um, yeah, I, I'm loving now, like it's getting into the heads of more younger people, like high school students have started to reach out to me. And I, that is, I'm so excited for that. I think when, when some people see this, um, it's definitely written for an older audience, but I was writing it um, not just to the child and myself, but I think that this is a, a book that could be helpful for lots of children um, who are, uh, you know, ready to deal with the topics in the book. So, yeah, yeah it's been a great response. I've, I've been really happy with it. Nice, nice. Okay, so uh, if the Misfits would like to, so I don't say follow, I say walk with. Uh, if the Misfits would like to walk with you on social media, how would they go about doing that? Um, I'm at Hari Ziad on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Less on Facebook these days. Um, not really on any social media. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me as much as anybody, or you can walk with me as much as anyone who can walk with me digitally on those pages. You can also subscribe to my newsletter and my website, hariziad.com. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. If you're in New York, you can hit me up and we can grab a drink. Oh, let's look, look at that. Look at that. <laughs> look at them putting their styles out there for the Misfit universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to thank you, Hari, for being here and uh, giving us your time. I know the Misfit universe truly appreciates it. And like I said, you have to come back again because there's so much more that we can talk about. But I gave you my word this wouldn't be a two-hour episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to come back. We can definitely look that up. Absolutely. Okay, Misfits, uh, we will be back with the couch. Okay, Misfits, come on in. Take a seat on the couch. So let's get started. Also, uh, I'm not going to do a good news this week. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of information at the end of the couch, but we're going to be ending this episode on the couch. Just wanted to let you know so you're not caught off guard. And let's get into it. Uh, we have two per usual. Uh, so the first one is from Derek. Derek's question. He says, I remember hearing you talk about sad on your show before. I don't remember what the letters mean, but in the past, I've wondered what was up with me because my mood would change in the fall and I didn't know why. My problem is this past year, it felt even worse. I don't know if it was... I don't know if it was the pylon of the pandemic or what, but I was really depressed once fall came and I'm not out of it yet. It's spring and I'm still depressed and sad most days. Do you know what this could be? Okay, so sad is seasonal affective disorder. And you'd be surprised how many people battle through this. I am one of those people. Now, more often than not, you'll hear about it taking place uh, from the, during the fall and winter months. However, it can take place in spring and summer, though that's considered more rare. Also, it happens more in women than it does in men. So just a little, a little information when it comes to that. Now, of course, as you stated, the pylon of the pandemic. So that absolutely could play a part in it. You know, people talk about, uh, you know, the uh, the COVID weight and all that stuff. That's very true, which also goes along with sad. 
with um, seasonal affective disorder, you can also gain weight. It can make you sluggish, not really want to get up and do anything. It could change your appetite. So there are a lot of things that go along with SAD that could look like um, the pandemic, you know, what has taken place over the past year with COVID. However, the one thing that makes me question what's going on is the fact that it has been extended. Now, there are some people that would also say this could be because of the pandemic. However, I would challenge that with saying it's all according to where you are. Like I'm in Atlanta. And for most people, even the people who are, you know, very cautious, we still have, you know, begun to go outside. This, you know, for most people, it was months ago uh, because you don't even need to be around people to go out. So we could be in parks or things of that nature outside where we don't have to be, you know, too physically close to others. However, there are other places like I have friends in New York who, you know, at most they may walk around the corner to a grocery store and that's it, you know. Um, I think my best friend, he and his husband, uh, they, you know, I've seen them in videos and pictures in the woods, you know, like going on hikes and stuff like that. But that's about it. So it really is all according to where you live. If you if you live in a place like this where you don't really have to shelter in place anymore and you can be kind of out there, I would question the fact that with all of these months that have still passed, you're here in spring and you're still feeling the exact same way. Again, it can take place in the spring and summer. However, it's rare that it takes place during those specific seasons. So if you've left out of winter and you still find yourself feeling the exact same way, consistently depressed, sluggish, things of that nature, I would implore you to then look into therapy. Um, and to see what they may, what that may do for you uh, to g provide yourself with an outlet. Now, if you feel first that maybe you should talk to friends, by all means, you know, have conversation with friends. If you're close to your family, have a conversation with them, uh, just an opportunity to vent. However, if you find that even after you're venting uh, and, you know, if you have any coping tools like meditation and deep breathing and things of that nature and that's still not working, then I would definitely say that you may want to look into therapy, uh, see what you're able to get out of that. And if you have to take a step further, then maybe you can begin to, uh, you know, um, at least put the idea out there of seeing a psychiatrist uh, if you feel like this persists and it goes on for a little too long, uh, I can already see from you submitting this that you appear to be a little uncomfortable. Uh, so if that is the case, and if it really is bothering you, I would ask that you take those steps. Uh, by all means, if you have any further questions or even if you wanna give us an update, feel free to contact us uh, as you did before. That's THS Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, underscore THS Podcast on Twitter. And you can always email us at THS at revolutionmultimedia.com. Thank you so much for being so transparent for us, Derek. Uh, and the next one is Michael. <laughs> Michael was very to the point. Um, he said, my man lied and I want to beat his ass. What should I do? Okay. <laughs> that was that was not long at all. <laughs> so I, I guess I would say, Michael, if you're listening to the whole episode, then you heard what it was that I said regarding Janet Mock and Angel Curiel. Uh, I feel as though if they, because here's the thing. I'm assuming you mean lied and being, you know, unfaithful. That may not be what you were talking about. All you said was my man lied. So if we're simply dealing with dishonesty, you know, cut, end, just right there, uh, then I would say that I'm not necessarily sure the kind of person that you are. Me, I'm a very direct person. 
Uh, I don't run away from confrontation. I think that it's best for a relationship if two people know exactly where the other person is coming from. So I would say that, you know, once again, this is my advice. Um, I mean, you asked me for it, so I didn't have to preface. But <laughs> I would say that I think that you should go to them respectfully, you know, because if you've done the research and you're absolutely sure that they're you know being dishonest because here's the deal you said to me my man lied what proof do you have now if you have solid proof then that's one thing if you're simply going off of your gut more often than not our solar plexus chakra is correct and we tend to ignore it however i would still say that you should have the conversation and if you have the conversation bring more to the table and and again my my apologies oh no you said my man i was gonna say i don't want to assume um but yes uh i i would think that if you bring it to your partner and you just state that my gut feels as though you're being dishonest that could end up making a lot of issues for your relationship uh, if you bring them cold hard facts, this is how I know you're being dishonest, that's totally different. And in that instance, you would need, and rightfully so, to have an answer. What's going on, you know? But instead of, you'd, because the whole thing is you could be serious or you could be joking about the whole beating his ass part. Um, but I would say that you hold off on doing that and you instead have a conversation. Please do not do it through text. Please do not do it through voicemail. Now, I know that there are some people who are uncomfortable with face-to-face -face conversations and they feel as though, if they feel as though, excuse me, doing it via text is better for them. However, this is a situation where you have to take into consideration that this is your partner. And as I've stated before, when you are in a relationship, it is not about me, it is about we. So though it may be uncomfortable for you to be able to broach this topic with him face-to-face, -face, I would ask that you do so. Uh, whatever it is you need to do first, if you need to talk to family, friends, you know, as a way of be being able to get you to the point where you can do it, you know, um, or even if you have to text him and say that there is a conversation that I would like to have, which more than likely will stress him out and get him worried. Um, <laughs> but you can say, I'm just asking ahead of time that you create space for me to be able to be honest and transparent with you because I'm nervous saying this to you face to face. In that moment, he may be like, you know what, I need to know now, I need to know now. No, I would rather say this to you face to face, you know. Um, they're just concerns that I have. And, you know, you may not even need to go into that. You, If you decide that maybe that would be too, too much drama, then when you get home or whenever you see them, you may not live together. Whenever you see him, say, there are some things I like to talk about. But before I get into it, please know that I'm anxious that I'm nervous and I would ask that you create space for me to be able to be my my true self and to be as transparent as possible. Have the conversation from there and allow him to speak his piece as well. However, at the end of the day, two things, go with your heart. Excuse me, that is not what I meant. If you could have seen me, I literally pointed to my head and say, go with your heart. Um, go with your mind and go with your gut. Keep the heart out of it. What do you think? And what do you feel, you know? What do you feel in your gut? Do you believe that he's telling the truth or do you believe that he's still lying to you? Mentally, do you believe that you can still move forward in this relationship feeling as though you're still uneasy? 
These are the questions that you have to ask yourself. But I would ask that you do this instead of hauling off and hitting him in his face. <laughs> I I personally believe that better things will come out of, uh, hopefully, transparency on both sides. And again, I, I say, please don't stay in a relationship because you feel as though either you, you can't be alone or you can't figure out whether or not you can trust them. Because when you reach that point, you are better off creating space between the two of you so that both of you can do the work. Because there's no need to stay in a relationship where you're despising the other person. That's not fair to them, and that's not fair to you. So I hope that helps. And as I stated to Derek earlier, by all means, uh, reach back out if you have any other questions. And definitely if you want to give us an update, it's greatly appreciated. So that's about it, Misfits. As I said, there wasn't going to be any good news. I mean, there's great news I'm about to share, but <laughs> there isn't a whole segment for it. So I'm really, really looking forward to this month of the healing space. As most of you know, I don't get excited until things are complete. So I'm excited for all of you to have heard the interview with Hari, and I'm excited for all of you to hear my interview next week with Imani Van Zapp. Both of those interviews have been completed, so I can officially be excited about them. <laughs> Thank you to Hari. I really, really appreciate you being on uh, THS. Misfits, please make sure that you are going out and purchasing their new book, A Black Boy Out of Time. Uh, I know that they have it on Audible. I chose not to get Audible. I wanted to have, you know, the old school physical copy that I could have in my hand. Shout out to Nicole for getting it for me. Like, I was able to get the book uh, earlier. Was I able to get it earlier than most? I think so. I think so. Um, she ordered it for me, like, late last year. So, uh, she got it for me for Kwanzaa. So, thank you so much, Nicole. I greatly appreciate it. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure that, you know, um, if you decide to go to a store, of course, stay safe uh, and purchase it. Or you can order it online. Uh, it is absolutely worth having. I know that you will enjoy it. And, again, uh, make sure that you are back here next week for my interview with Imani Van Zapp. I'm really looking forward to all of my conversations this month, and I hope that you are too. Uh, if you want to be able to walk with us once again on social media, that is THS Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. That is underscore THS Podcast on Twitter. And our official website is wearetlm.com. For me, if you want to walk with me, that is Scorpiogi across all platforms. S-C-O-R-P-I-Y-O-G-I. -I. I think that might be the first time I've said that without pausing and making sure that I spelled it correctly. Ha <laughs> ha, progress. Anyway, misfits, <laughs> I am done. I hope that you all have enjoyed this episode. And again, can't wait to see you next week. I love you all so much. Until then, namaste. Namaste.